The disconnect between what people were saying outside of the Zoom, outside of the feed, outside of the Slack channel, and what they were saying inside was so vast that I began to feel like there's a lot that's not being said and there's a lot that's not being written. And if we are all talking about these things on our own, why isn't anyone writing about them? And, you know, and then part of my evolution to deciding to become a columnist was thinking, well, someone needs to write about this stuff. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. Welcome back from Thanksgiving. Hope you had a good week. Before I introduce this week's guest, Pamela Paul, I have some announcements. The first is that my next writing workshop has been announced for early next year. I'll be teaching another personal essay and memoir workshop on Zoom. It will run six consecutive Wednesdays, January 10th through February 14th from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. The application deadline is December 13th. And to uh, apply and learn more about that, you can go to my substack, megandom.substack.com and find the post about that. You can also apply through the Unspeakeasy website. I have added the writing class onto a a menu at the unspeakeasy.com. This is a co-ed class and it's not like uh, an official Unspeakeasy offering, but I have just added some information about it on the Unspeakeasy website. So you can either go to the Substack or to the unspeakeasy.com and find out how to apply. December 13th is the deadline. Speaking of the Unspeakeasy, we have four retreats officially announced for 2024 and are almost certainly going to announce a fifth. What we have as of now are March 2nd and 3rd in Austin. That is a weekend retreat. April 9th through 12th in Louisville, Kentucky. April 20th and 21st in Los Angeles. That's another weekend retreat. Sometime in May, and now this is the one we have not announced yet, but I'm 90% sure it's happening. We will be doing a retreat in the Seattle area. So stay tuned for more about that. And finally, in the fall, October 21st through 24th, we'll be in Woodstock, New York. The guest speakers that are lined up thus far are Sarah Heppola in Austin, the amazing Sarah Heppola, who's been a guest here many times. She's uh, an incredible writer and also the co-host of the Smoke Em If You Got Em podcast with Nancy Rommelman. And let's see, Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn of the Heterodorks podcast will be the guest speakers in Louisville. And I am working on more. You guys want so many retreats. I have become an event planner. And uh, it's uh, never fails to uh, surprise. Good. It's a good. It's a good career. Okay, my guest is New York Times opinion columnist Pamela Paul. Pamela joined the opinion page in April of 2022. Before that, she was the editor of the Book Review, where she hosted the Book Review podcast, and she's also the author of many books. Most recently, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Now, Pamela is one of those columnists who writes about a lot of the kinds of things we talk about around here that makes her both loved and hated, as you might imagine. I know hate is a strong word, so let's see. Loved and uh, less loved. Let's put it that way. And in this conversation, we talk about what it's been like to share her opinions after so many decades as an editor and a reporter. 
I should tell you that this is another one of those episodes for which there is not a bonus portion. So if you are a paying subscriber, don't worry, you're not missing anything. However, you are getting this a few days early if you're a payer. And of course, you have the ability to leave comments, not to mention read my writing, all that kind of thing. I'm experimenting with different ways to offer bonus content. So just bear with me. In the meantime, this is a very wide-ranging and robust conversation with Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul, welcome to The Unspeakable. I'm so happy to be here. I love this podcast. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time now, and there's a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about your opinion column in the New York Times. I want to talk about your time at the New York Times Book Review and about books in general and reading them and publishing them and reviewing them. But first, I want to ask you a question about your own mind, okay? What makes you interested in the things that you're interested in? Like, what do you think makes you angry about the things you're angry about? Oh, well, that's two different questions, right? Because sometimes I'm interested in something because it makes me angry. And sometimes I'm interested in something because, you know, for any other intellectual or emotional response. I mean, it's funny, as a journalist, when I'm doing long reported stories, I kind of joke, but it's it's true that the sort of sadder and more horrible the thing is, the more I'm interested in it. So when I I used to do freelance pieces for Vogue um, a number of years ago before I was at the Times, and I joked that I was on like the, the least glamorous beat for Vogue. Like I did a piece on <laughs> That's the best. I I, yeah. <laughs> I wrote freelance pieces for Vogue too. I was like the unfashionable person. Yeah. Oh, I did I did staph infections. I did <laughs> um, you know chronic Lyme disease. I did um, you know. Yeah, I just did everything um, terrible. And I, as a freelancer, I used to, I was a contributor to Time Magazine for a, a long time. And I remember I would pitch a story to Time and they would say, well, like, that's really just too dark and depressing. And then I would usually take it to the New York Times Magazine. And, and again, they're also depressing. I did a story about um, women who get cancer while pregnant. I did a story about the diagnosis of depression in preschoolers. I did a story oh, wow. about this lesbian couple in West Virginia who was being denied uh, the right to adopt their 21st foster child because they were gay. Um, so, And then if, if the New York Times would often say, the magazine, that's too depressing, then I would go to Vogue and Vogue would be like, okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> Anna so, Wintour uh, cowers in the face of nothing. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, yes. And I loved getting, you know, when you wrote for them as a freelancer, you may remember this, you would get a little note that would say, AWOC, you know, Anna Winter okays it. Um, yep. So yep. once you got the AWOC, you were good. Um, so oftentimes, I'm very interested in darkness. And that comes to reading as well. Like I, if, if someone is dying in the book or has died before the book has come out, I, I will read it. I, I just am really drawn to the extremes of human experience. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, to say that we live in dark times now is banal at this point. And sometimes I'm wondering, like, you know, is it really dark or does it just seem really dark because of the algorithm? So, you know, we might get to that in a little bit here. But, you know, in terms of your your column, so you started writing for the New York Times opinion pages in 2022. Your first shot over the bow, your first column in April that year was about cultural appropriation. So 
you established yourself from the get-go as someone who was going to take on the culture wars. The response was swift and strong from from both directions. Um, I think a lot of people were really excited that somebody was talking about this kind of stuff and was clearly going to be talking about it. Others were seeing you as part of the TM problem, (laughs) the trademarked problem. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to go in that direction? Well, it's interesting. I actually never used the phrase cultural appropriation in that column, which was called the limits of lived experience, um, in part because I think that we have all of these catchphrases, right? Woke is obviously another one where um, the minute you say this sort of this buzz phrase, it's it sort of shuts down people's brains, right? And they don't actually think about what it is that is being discussed. And the reason I, I, I mean, actually, it's interesting. I wasn't going to start with that column. I was going to start with a column about translated literature. I thought it would be a really good way to kind of bridge my move from the book review to opinion. And and I did eventually do that column. I think it was sadly one of my least read columns, although I it, it was important to me, which is um, it was about the importance of of translation. And I think that anyone who writes or has written anything understands how difficult translation is. And to me, the people that do that are kind of, I, 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 they're geniuses of another order. It's like a really good political cartoonist. It's like, I just, I don't have that genius, all those choices they have to make. But in any case, I ended up doing lived experience because um, an editor uh, said, rightly so, like, I think that's a little bit small bore and you should start out big. And I was so excited to become a columnist because I had been in the newsroom for 11 years where you really can't have any opinion. Um, Even on books, like there was a long policy that you'd never weigh in on a book before the critic for the New York Times has weighed in on a book. And then furthermore, as the editor of the section, I never really wanted to weigh in on whether I liked something or not, because then it would seem like there was some kind of, that I had some sort of editorial power over the direction of the reviews, um, which I didn't. And I didn't want to create that false impression that I was somehow gunning for this book or for that book. So I had to be very quiet for a long time about my enthusiasms, my um, the things that irritated me, whatever moved me. And I could talk about that endlessly, sort of what that was like. But I was very excited uh, to finally say something. And so when I left the book review, I gave myself a six-week break to kind of like unshackle myself from all of the habits and things that I was just, I just needed some time between doing that and writing. And in the end, about three days into that six-week period off, I started writing. And so I was just like, I couldn't stop myself. I was so excited to finally express myself that I had a few columns ready to go, essentially, before I began. And so... You know, for me, the column about lived experience, and for those who haven't read it, it essentially says that, you know, just because you've lived through something, um, lived experience really is just a kind of new way of saying experience. Or Or I was going to say it's a new way of saying anecdotal evidence. Yes, right, which we were always, you know, discouraged from relying on overly as journalists. But it is one way of looking at things, and it definitely is an important way of looking at things. So if you have, let's say, been a victim of crime, right, it is going to inform the way you look at 
let's say you were robbed. It's going to look inform the way you look at robbery because you've been a victim of crime. Now, in some ways, it's a very helpful way of informing how you look at that issue. But in other ways, it can be limiting, right? Because you have your own personal like right. burden that you're This is why people don't get on jury trials if they have any personal experience with exactly. the kind of Exactly, right? It gets in the way of your tried. impartiality. And actually, yeah. one of the last assignments I had for Vogue, um, it was a, something that was assigned to me and I was very excited to do it. And then I realized it was about something that unfortunately touched very close to a family member of mine. It was about a health issue. And I said to my editor, I don't think I can do this without acknowledging that closeness. And I don't want to acknowledge that closeness. I think I can't get enough distance here. And I take myself off this assignment. So I had, quote unquote, lived experience there, but I felt that my lived experience, I hate using that phrase, but my personal experience of that issue was going to cloud my judgment because I was too emotionally invested in it. Now, again, has its uses in memoir. It often has its uses in journalism, but it's just as limiting. And so one of the things that had bothered me at the book review was that there had become an assumption had taken hold within the industry and among many writers that you couldn't write about something unless it was your experience. And to me, that is, first of all, deadening for fiction writers because it, it doesn't allow for flights of imagination. Or, But it was also really deadening to me in, in terms of a human experience because it means that you cannot have empathy. You cannot feel for someone across borders. And that's really what the whole purpose of journalism is to, or sorry, of fiction, of any of literature, which is to create a sense of shared experience over, you know, borders, national borders, ethnic borders, age. Or just time and space and right, right. like you realms know? of thought. I, I mean, yes. like science fiction. I mean, what are, right. what are we talking about here? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, when I used to talk about like what I like to read in a novel, I always said it's, I like to be transported. Like I like to access something I could never access, whether it's because it's a fictional universe and a Ted Chang, you know, short speculative fiction, or it's, you know, the coal mines of 19th century France and Germinal. Like I can't access those things. So that's how I, I mind and time travel. And, and anyway, so that's what that column was about. And for me, it goes like really, really deep. I could talk a, a, a lot about that, but you probably want to move on. Well, so I'm I'm curious, are you saying that when you were the editor of the book review, and we should say you were the editor for nine years until yes. you started your column. So that would mean you started there in 2013, which I would say is right on the cusp of when things started to get weird in the culture. So I started there part-time as the children's books editor in 2011 with a very specific, you know, deal that I would be able to write for outside the time. So that was 2011, 2012. I was then still the children's books editor. And as is the case with many jobs, it was just an add-on and it became full-time. I was also the features editor, which was a kind of co-deputy uh, position um, under Sam Tannenhouse. And then in 2013, I did all of the book review. And then in 2016, it sort of 
enlarged twice twofold in that it was the daily reviewers, it was the news and publishing report, and it was kind of all books at the Times. And we should explain just for people who might not understand this. So the when we say the book review, we're talking about the standalone book review section in the New York Times, which is pretty rare. At this point, most of the standalone book sections in newspapers have been jettisoned. So the Times is one of the few places that still has one. But in the review itself, in that section, the reviews are written by outside reviewers, usually other authors that have been assigned as freelancers to review the books. In the daily reviews in the art section, those are written by the in-house Times staff reviewers. So, And the same book can get reviewed by the in-house staff in that section as well as in the book review. And actually, that's that's ideal. You know you've made it when you're, you're reviewed. When you get the two. Well, actually, so a lot of that has changed since I left. So now you can't get two reviews. Oh, really? Um, now the critics rarely run in the daily news pages anymore, and they are, they've been moved into the book review section. But when I was there, yes. And it this used is how to out, be... out to lunch I have been. No, it's okay. Pod- I mean, podcasting world. <laughs> and a lot of this is is sort of, you know, esoteric New York Times history, but the New York Times Book Review was a kind of um, vestigial organ of the days when the Weekend Times was a separate entity from the Daily New York Times. This is a very much a print-centric thing. So in the same way that in the UK you have the Times of London and the Sunday Times, and they were two separate things, that's what the New York Times had. And the Book Review was the last remaining section from the old weekend times. And so it was a run very independently from the rest of the paper, also because we reviewed the work of our fellow colleagues and therefore needed to have people from outside the times do that work. And so the the staff book reviewers were always part of the culture pages of the Times, and the reporting was seated halfway between culture and the business section of the Times. And so in 2016, what happened is they decided in an era, in the digital era, it doesn't make sense for us to have these sort of print-derived lines, which, you know, some people understood and, and thought were was important, but you know, let's face it, the vast majority of online readers were like, what? <laughs> Why is this book here in one place and there in another? Um, and so that was all centralized in 2016. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like a, a, a few minutes ago, you were suggesting that the philosophy at the book review suddenly started to be that a writer could not write about something that was not his or her own lived experience. I mean, that sounds a little strong. There's all kinds of books being written all the time. But I would like you to just sort of talk about maybe the the evolution in thinking about this kind of thing. Because like I said, you were there. This is a really critical time. Like, you know, between 2011 and 2022, a whole lot changed about the way people think and thought about reading and writing. Yeah. Um, Well, it wasn't, I I should say, this wasn't at the book review specifically. This was kind of a larger cultural shift that was happening in publishing and across the arts. You know, remember there was the whole you know, the, the scandal at the Whitney over the painting of Emmett Till. There there were a lot of conversations. This was happening in every realm of the art and in media. By the way, this was a painting by a white artist depicting the open casket of, of Emmett Till. And the criticism was that she had no right to 
depict this image? I think yes, that was yes. pretty much it. Yeah, that was at the Whitney Biennial. I think it was in 2018 um, or 2019, but uh, it may have been 2017. In any case, so this was sort of part of a broader conversation where, you know, we were suddenly having to think about, like, who does it make sense to review this book? Does it make sense to have someone who reflects the exact experience of the author or the experience described in the book? Or does it make sense to have someone come at it from a different angle? And so one thing that had bothered me about reviews in general is that and when I came in, you know, the biggest question was around sex. You know, it was around like how many women are reviewing, how many men are reviewing. And I really am not that interested in that sort of simplistic sense of representation. For me, what interested me was who reviewed what in, in terms of subject matter. So it, I did notice, for example, that when it came to books around the Middle East, it tended to be mostly men. And I thought, well, you know, women also can write about Israel um, or about the Middle East or about foreign policy or about science. And also, Black writers could write about books that had nothing to do with race, you know, that, that were just about these subject matters. And for me, I always want readers to be surprised and intrigued by the way in which a reviewer approaches material not to find it predictable. So I didn't like the fact that we always had, for example, there were like five people who always wrote about Chinese literature or about China. And I thought, well, like there have to be other voices out there. So one of my larger strategies was to have people writing about things that, you know, they weren't, wasn't naturally expected of them. And when I would meet writers, I would always ask them, what's the thing that you would be most interested in writing about that nobody ever asks you to do? Or what do you like to read, you know, that, that might surprise us? One example of an assignment I made like this is that I had met um, Siddhartha Mukherjee and, you know, he's a doctor, he's um, a, a, a writer, he wrote uh, Emperor of All Maladies about cancer, he wrote The Gene, he wrote Song of the Cell. And so naturally everyone's going to assign him medical books, but he told me what he really liked was smart science fiction, like really good speculative fiction. And so when I assigned him something, it was an Ian McEwan novel that had a speculative angle to it, the nutshell, and that was what I assigned him. So that's the kind of thing that really excited me. And it was really the opposite in many ways of saying, like, let's get this person to write about this thing because we have pigeonholed them in that way, whether it's according to race or ethnicity or, you know, country of origin. I always wanted people to just to bring a different angle to something. So, I mean, what kinds of conversations were you having with people in the literary world during this time about what was going on with publishing, just kind of within the context of these political discussions? I mean, the changing dimensions of just kind of the way everybody talked about identity primarily, but all the other things that kind of emanate out of identity. Like, did you think of yourself as somebody who had controversial opinions about this kind of thing? Or had it just kind of like snuck up on you? No, I mean, I felt like I was coming to this from a fundamental liberal, you know, angle. And also, you know, I think if anything, like my politics are kind of French, like, um, which makes me further to the left than a lot of Americans. But also it 
means a belief in a kind of universalism. And I believe that literature is a universal language, that it is something that crosses borders. So to me, like this all just felt very obvious that if you were interested in literature and in reading, that you would naturally be wanting to have these kinds of this kind of excitement. And I really, I remember one um, incident where we assigned Victor Laval to review, I think it was a, a science fiction, it was a horror novel. Maybe it was even, maybe it was Stephen King. But his response, which was not to me, to another editor, or maybe he wrote it on Twitter, was, you know, thank you for giving me a book that has nothing to do with race. And so what I would often say when talking to people who wanted to sort of match race of author to race of novelist or reviewer is this is just as limiting to non-white writers as it is you know, it, it, like we're essentially pigeonholing them. I don't think that anyone wants that. You know, I, I don't think that you need to only have gay writers reviewing gay novels. Like, and I, you know, and also <laughs> yes. like, it's like even the idea of like a gay novel or a black novel, like, what is that? What is that? We live in a multicultural world. We live in a world in which people of different sex sexual orientations aren't on an island. Like we're all in the same world. So there might be a main gay character, but there are other characters populating that novel. Like you don't have to have this just kind of reductive essentialist view of literature in the same way that we shouldn't have that in the real world. Was this like a generational divide. So I know, you know, you're a Gen Xer. You and I are about the same age. I think you went to Brown, so yes. back in the day. And, you know, so... Nexus of, uh, of Gen Xitude. Yes, yes. A, a different place uh, then than it, than it is now in, in many ways, I assume. But Very you, know, different. You, you say you have a French sensibility. You are not French. No, I'm a cultural appropriator. Okay. So were you kind of bumping up against values that had been kind of inculcated in you as somebody who grew up uh, when you did versus younger people? Like, how were these conversations going? Or were they even conversations? Were these, was this all just kind of subtext? Like, did I fight with people? Yes, <laughs> I guess that's what, what I'm asking. asking. Yes. You know, one of the things that I wanted to do, like running a department, is to not impose from the top down, but to, you know, the whole idea of the book review, to my mind, was to hire people who had all different kinds of backgrounds and tastes and interests. So diversity, not just in terms of, you know, demographic categories, but diversity in terms of their education, their expertise, their political ideology, which was something that you know, the Times had always felt that the book review was supposed to be a kind of marketplace of ideas similar to opinion. Like if anything, that's that made our section closer to opinion. We were supposed to be a kind of ideological Switzerland where you would have writers of different political persuasions coming to weigh in on books. And I really liked that, like because I, I like reading from different points of view. And so I felt like my biggest role was to bring people along to that shared vision of purpose, even if their own sensibilities or politics might be different. You know, so I, you know, Barry Weiss, when she left and wrote that very famous letter of departure, she was not at the book review, she was at Opinion, and she said, like, that the New York Times doesn't have diversity of viewpoints. I One of the things I said to my team is I said, well, look, if you whether you agree with Barry or not, like, if you don't like that she's saying that, then prove her wrong. Like, 
assigned to people you disagree with, assigned to people. Um, and honestly, like to me, the most exciting assignments were when you didn't know what the person was going to think, you know, and I think a lot of, of, of my colleagues believe that too. Like the goal wasn't to find someone who was going to like stamp, stamp an I approve mark on it. And the goal was not to get someone who was going to take it down. In fact, we really, really tried hard not to do that. So, um, you know, you don't want someone coming to it with some kind of conflict or agenda. So, well, the Times did have that reputation for a long time, right? I I mean, I don't know if this is deserved, if this reputation is deserved or not, but we always would hear about like people's arch enemies being assigned to review their books or that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, we really tried hard not to. And look, I, I, I can't remember which book. My second book um, got a very negative review in the book review, and I felt like that was a valuable experience, lived experience for me to bring to the table because I knew how awful it was to get someone assigned that you think, you know, had an agenda or didn't read your book, you know, in good faith. But so I, I actually think that was helpful to me because I was always very sympathetic to any writer who, you know, it, it was never our intention to have that happen. But sometimes, alas, it did. And there was very often the case that we would assign something we loved and our reviewers would hate it. So, you know, that 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 definitely happened. But especially on political books, it was always really the idea that you didn't know what someone was going to think or say was very exciting. And I would say that over the time that I was there, it became increasingly difficult to find. There were people who were reliably maverick thinkers when I started, and you just never knew where they would land. You know, it was like Michael Kinsley, Christopher Hitchens, Jim Holt, Francine Prose. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, really great uh, Zoe um, Heller. Zoe thank Heller. you. Yes. Um, Zoe Heller, you know, you just didn't know where they were going to land. We never got Zadie Smith to review, although I was always, always wanted to know what she thought of anything. Uh, She's just her, her piece about speaking of Emmett Till, since we mentioned that Whitney Biennial scandal, she wrote, you know, the seminal piece about that situation in the New York Times, in the New York Review of Books. Seminal is a word we're not allowed to use anymore, Megan. Really? Yeah, it's on the list of forbidden words. Because it's like gender gender binary-ish. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so anyway. Okay, we'll bleep that out. We'll bleep it out. We don't want to get in trouble. (laughs) But uh, those reviewers became harder and harder to find. Obviously, um, Hitchens died um, in 2013. But the difficulty was that when you got someone to review a book, you know, you didn't want them to assess a book based on whether or not they agreed or disagreed with its politics. This is a particular political book. Yeah, and you don't want them to review the author. That's right. what I think oh, well, that's, is happening yeah, that's a lot. memoir. That happens a lot with memoir with and with, with fiction. Even, you yes. see it. Yes, yes. And yes, and often in a really flattening way. Like, this person follows so-and-so on Twitter, therefore they are a bad yeah, person. Yeah, or this person has disappointed us. This yes. person, it, like, you know, we liked what they did before. And instead they of saying, oh, they've better. surprised, instead of saying they've surprised us, it's they've disappointed us. Yes, right. Because, you know, it, it it's a very close-minded way of viewing things. And again, it's uh, reductive. And it just, to me, was the opposite of what the culture should be doing, which is welcoming unex- the unexpected, welcoming dissent. But in any case, it was really hard to find people who could say, like, look, I, I disagree with absolutely everything this book says, but it's really well argued and totally entertaining and, you know, very persuasive to those who might be inclined to 
uh, read this and um, perhaps might be instructive for people who are disagree with it to read um, as well. And I remember we had this really great editor at the book review who'd been there for over 30 years and and she has subsequently retired, but she would often come in when we would be uh, work on assignments. The editors, we call them preview editors on staff, would um, read the books, decide what would be reviewed or not reviewed, when they would then bring in the ones that they thought should get reviewed and we would meet a small group of us to discuss and they would basically present the book and say, this is why I think it should be reviewed. And this is who I, the length I think it should have. And these are my list of names of people. And, and I, you know, sometimes they would have an order. Or sometimes we would talk about it. It became a discussion. But in any case, she would often come in, this longtime editor, and say, well, this book is not my cup of tea. But for people who like cozy mysteries or for people who appreciate this kind of thing. So she was able to see uh, a book's merit beyond her own taste. And that is the mark, I think, of a good editor where, yes, it is in part your taste and at your discretion, but also you should have a mind that is flexible um, and uh, malleable enough to appreciate how something might work for a different kind of reader, to appreciate something that is well done, even if it's high fantasy and you're not a high fantasy see reader. Um, so I think I probably lost track of your question. No, I, I mean, there's, this is, this applies just like across so many different landscapes of thought here. Right. So I want to, I mean, I want to shift and talk about your opinion pieces, but let's actually sit in 2020 for a minute here. So 2020 was the summer of many things happened. Um, everyone's happy place. Yes, exactly. I think it was in the spring that, or maybe it was later in the summer, that Barry uh, Weiss wrote her sort of barn burner of a resignation letter about leaving the opinion pages. I mean, I don't expect you to talk about what was going on in the office specifically during that time, but it does touch on something that you mentioned earlier, which is this atmosphere around not being willing to print opinions that the sort of critical mass on staff doesn't agree with. I mean, we saw this later that summer with James Bennett being fired over a Tom Cotton opinion piece. Like, what was the, I mean, maybe you can just speak in in general terms. Like, what was the feeling at the New York Times during that period of time? Like, was it just like Armageddon or was were people icing each other out? Like, what was it like just going to work every day? Well, remember, we weren't going to work every day. We weren't going day. to work every day. Okay, uh, we what was it like Zoom on the Slack day. channels On the Slack channels that had become the uh, substitute for the water cooler? Um, well, so I'll probably disappoint you with the absence of juiciness of my response, but I will say I'll talk about that time personally for me, which may have been the beginning of the genesis of my wanting to become an opinion columnist. I'd wanted to for many, many, many years, but didn't for many years for a number of reasons. And one of them was the fact that I loved my job so much at the book review that I I just thought I'm never going to leave this job. And even when I um, applied to be a columnist, you know, I made sure with Dean that like, if I didn't get the job, like, and you know, he assured me, don't worry, we, you can come right back to the book. This review. is Dean Beckay, the this editor is, yeah, of the Times. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I had that, that reassurance because, you know, you, 
the way it works at the times. You don't every a lot of people want to be colonists, and it's not just handed out. So there was yeah. A, I think you actually applied. I think people will oh, yeah. will find this um, maybe surprising some people. Like that you don't just get like plucked out of the, no. the garden and said Here <laughs> no, no, because I mean, look, it's a very different job, um, and they're both demanding jobs. But um, it's not obvious that someone running the books department is going to then become an opinion colonist. And the other thing is that because I had never expressed an opinion, I don't think that I would have been anyone's, you know. <laughs> you had so many stored up. I would think yes. all the better. You hadn't yes. wasted I, them. Right. Um, I'd been sitting on them for 11 years, but nobody would know what that was like. And it was interesting because it was almost like stepping out of a closet and saying like, this is why I want to be an opinion colonist. And by the way, these are my opinions. Like this is because, you know, when I, so this might in a way answer your 2020 question, which is that I felt that my opinions were, and that my priorities were not reflected on the um, opinion page, which is not a criticism of the opinion page, but it was what I felt like would be an opportunity for the times. Like if you feel like you don't have a representation of this here, this is what I would like to offer. And this is why I think that it would be different from what you have there now. And so it was funny because I, you know, really had to write kind of a letter of introduction and being like, this is how and where I grew up. And this is why I believe what I believe. And, you know, you asked earlier, like, why am I, why do I think of myself as French? Well, I lived in France. I worked in France. I went to school in France. I go back there frequently. And I always feel when I get there, I'm like, I am home, which is like, you know, probably one of the most obnoxious, pretentious things that one could say, but a, a big part of my, what I felt like I was bringing to, to opinion was that I had lived in, I'd lived in France, I'd lived in England, I'd lived in Thailand. I didn't live in any of those places really as a foreign correspondent, but they were very formative experiences uh, for me as a human. And I think made me probably less... I, I just think it broadened my perspective in a number of ways that, uh, for you know, is different from people who've sort of been in, immersed in American politics and in an American point of view their whole lives. But uh, what I felt like in that year, 2020, generally speaking, was that our lives as journalists, as human beings, became incredibly small. And mine was like the size of a Zoom. And I was in that Zoom all day long, from beginning to end. And I think, you know, it was like being in, if you think about that year and you think about what was going on in Twitter and what was going on in Slack, everyone's world became really reduced to the tiniest of echo chambers and in opposition to all the other echo chambers, right? So everyone was hearing only a, a small thing and not being necessarily exposed to other points of view. And then when they got out momentarily, it was like terrifying that these other people who'd been in their own little echo chambers or their own endless Zooms were thinking these things. And I think that that's why so many of us, you know, long to get out and uh, broaden our perspective in some way. I mean, I think that the protests, you know, were so powerful that year, not just because of the substance, which of course um, was a major factor, but also just like release us from where we have been, we have been stuck. And the one thing that I did start doing during that year was talk on the phone. I've never been a phone talker, but of course that was, you know, all you had for a while. And I would have long conversations on the phone 
And those conversations felt really freeing in a way because you weren't in an office place. I was often like walking around my neighborhood, gesticulating wildly and yelling with a set of, you know, soundproof uh, headphones behind on. Your, behind your mask. Yes, yes. Um, and probably looking like a complete insane person. But you realized in those moments, that in those conversations, people were much more open than they were, you know, back in front of their laptop. And I, the dissonance, the disconnect between what people were saying outside of the Zoom, outside of the feed, outside of the Slack channel, and what they were saying inside was so vast that I began to feel like there's a lot that's not being said and there's a lot that's not being written. And if we are all talking about these things on our own, why isn't anyone writing about them? And you know, and then part of my evolution to deciding to become a columnist was thinking, well, someone needs to write about this stuff. Someone needs to articulate some viewpoints that maybe are not on these sort of polar fringes. And, you know, like you've said um, yourself in your writing and on this podcast many times, I know that, or I think you still consider yourself a liberal and that you didn't change, but the world changed. And I felt like, similarly, I've always been a liberal. Like, I've been I have a column actually that I that I just wrote about this like very irritated that that word has been like when that word started to be attacked by Ronald Reagan and by Newt Gingrich and the 1994 Congress obviously that's not the first time it was attacked but when that was happening I was like I am as big a liberal as ever like I I thought I am not giving up this word and um and it really aggravated me that people started calling themselves progressives you know I'd like that had formerly called themselves liberals some people always called themselves progressives but I always stuck by that term I always felt like I was a liberal I knew my politics hadn't changed and I just felt like no one was articulating what to me were the kind of foundational aspects of liberalism. And one of the main ones is open-mindedness. And yet everyone, I, especially during that year of 2020, it felt like everyone's mind was were kind of squeezing shut. We're going to pause here for a brief message. Hi, it's Megan. I hope you're enjoying this conversation and I promise I'll get right back to it. But you may have noticed that there's something missing in this podcast, ads. I don't run them. I don't do host reads. And I decided a long time ago that I will not run programmatic ads. They're simply too disruptive. Not our style around here. But that means that the only support I get for this podcast comes from paying subscribers. This thing is entirely my own. It's not affiliated with any organization or secret cabal of funders. I do it because I love it, and I'm committed to bringing you candid, respectful, surprising conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. That's why I'm asking you to consider becoming a paying subscriber to this podcast's Substack page, which you can find at megandom.substack.com. For as little as $7 a month, you can get bonus content nearly every week, access to my new writing, the chance to participate in comments, and a lot more. If you join at the founding members level, you can meet me almost every month for a listener Zoom hangout where we talk about the show and discuss how to pronounce my last name. To do that, go to megandom or megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join us. It helps me out tremendously. So thank you. And now back to the interview. It felt like everyone's mind was were kind of squeezing shut. 
Yeah. Open-mindedness and also a willingness to let people be who they are, right? Like yeah. not yeah. policing other people. I mean, that right. kind of like that the purity policing that like we grew up associating with fundamentalist Christian right has been taken over by yes. the modern progressives. Right. Well, also, and like the the idea of like deplatforming people or like not wanting to hear them or saying that their words are going to harm them, that to me was so anathema because I've I was never a, we didn't have a debate team in my high school, so it was never an option. But I I never learned to do all of that. I wish I had. But um, what I did find is that it's incredibly stimulating to read an opposing point of view. When I, um, after I lived in Thailand, I came back to New York and I worked at Scholastic and my boss at the time forced me to get not just the New York Times every day, but the Wall Street Journal every day. And I'd never read the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) And I would (laughs) open up the editorial page and my mind would explode. It was like 10 cups of coffee. It absolutely got me going because again, growing up, um, you know, in New York, going to Brown University, like living in, you know, Europe, and then in in Thailand, like I just had never encountered conservatives, Republicans. Like I just, <laughs> I honestly hadn't, and I just couldn't. You know, I knew they existed on TV and in the White House, but like I didn't know. I couldn't believe what was being written there. It just broke my mind, and I found it incredibly stimulating and fascinating. Because it's not until you're in opposition and you have to defend your ideas that you really, really, I think, strengthen your own argument. Yeah. And the conservatives are better at defending their ideas because the left sort of won the culture a long time ago. So the conservatives are used to being on the outside and they're used to, frankly, not caring as much what people think about them. Right, right. And that's a huge, I mean, that is a superpower. Not caring what people are saying about you behind your back is a gift. And and it's a very hard to, it's very hard thing to acquire and to to sustain. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I'm and I curious. think it's harder for women. <laughs> yeah, right. Which I've I've talked about, but I, but I'm, you know, back to 2020 when you're having those phone calls with people. Are they like admitting to the fact that they're saying different things on Twitter than they are in private conversations? Well, you know, it's not. I wasn't really talking to people who were doing that. It's more that we would observe that that was happening. Right. So everything became the back channel is that that was like the the beginning of the back channel. Yes. And I think that that was the beginning too of like when people started to notice that people that they thought were open-minded or liberal, like they were seeing a kind of illiberalism and um, scolding and controlling and divisive behavior on social media. And it was like, wait a minute, you're not who I thought you were. And I thought we all got along really well, whether that was in the workplace or, you know, in a in a book club or in a um, parents group or whatever it was, like whatever you're, I think that, you know, what happened is we became so isolated from our actual communities. And by that, I mean the traditional sense of like being in physical proximity with one another and we're holding up in these very narrow identities around belief systems or around essentialist demographic qualities, and that anyone who then would deviate from that was was dangerous. But uh, what what troubled me again is that 
the absence of open-mindedness to hearing any other point of view, that one thing sort of became the the accepted version. And, you know, this was around the time that, you know, everyone was reading Ibram Kendi and everyone was reading, you know, Robin D'Angelo, who's like at the top of my list of very silly people, and like taking at them as like the gospel that if you were to be white, you then must believe what Robin D'Angelo is. Otherwise, you were, you know, some kind of, you know, fanatical, um, you know, fascist. Yeah. And and someone to be feared. It's not yes. even somebody to be disagreed with. It's actually somebody to be feared. I mean, I feel like I have seen people almost physically backing away yes. <laughs> when certain topics come up. And, you know, and so I did see a number of people, you know, lose their jobs and various, you know, the sort of all of the kind of purges that happened um, in 2020. But then, you know, with Ibram Kendi, too, like, I felt like everyone is saying, like, like, to me, it reminded me of, do you remember that scene in Mulholland Drive where you know, they're sort of putting forward an actress and they're like, this is the girl. Oh, yeah. This is the girl. Do you remember? It was like a very kind of scary, ominous, like you felt like this is the person we have placed into the slot to play the girl. And I felt like it reminded me of what Stephen Carter wrote in his book, Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. And what many people in the culture said, like, you know, that like Hollywood can only have one black guy at a time. You know, there can only be one person. And people were like, this Ibram Kendi is the one person who has given us the answer about racism. And I felt like that itself was very racist. It's like, how could you say like what, like it, this is denying the heterogeneity of black people. They have just as many rich and complicated ideas around race as anyone else. Yeah. And you're saying tokenism. like, right. You're like, this is the one person. And suddenly it became that if you disagreed with them, like if you didn't say like, I am anti-racist, that you were somehow racist. It was just this very kind of blinkered, um, I keep using the word simplistic and reductive, but that's what it was. And I just felt like, you know. Well, it's lazy. I think yeah. it's lazy. It, it comes down to that. It's incurious and lazy. And, you know, as you know, I had been noticing this for many years prior, especially around women's issues, around feminism. Yep. So I think like a lot of what happened in 2020 is that the race discussion kind of picked up from where we had left off with with women. Like suddenly, you know, people were talking about Black people, mostly people of color, but mostly blacks, in the way that they'd been talking about about women. And right, right. I mean, I remember, like with me too. You know, when they, when everyone was saying "believe all women," I thought, absolutely not. That is so insulting. Well, it's women sexist. are fant- it's sexist and insulting. Women are incredibly good liars. Some of the yeah, most better, actually, Frank, liars. frankly, much yes. better. But yeah, that's yes, another like conversation. Some of the most like um, you know, yes, vicious, They're manipulative, just, uh, expert gaslighters. Expert Gaslighters yes. are women. And so absolutely not. I'm not going to believe all women. And the fact that you don't recognize that statement as insulting to women is bizarre to I me. I know it's it's mind-blowing because I feel like not too long ago, we had like pretty, we, we were able to entertain complexities. Like, you know, in the early aughts, like I feel like as recently as like, you know, 2010, 2011, there was really funny stuff. Like comedy was thriving. People understood irony. You could make, you could joke about certain groups. I mean, even like Key and Peel, like when they first came on the scene, I mean, it was just, it was just brilliant. Like there was a kind of baseline sophistication um, that somehow just fell away 
pretty quickly. So, okay. So, so you're having all these thoughts around 2020 and I assume they've been kind of burbling up even before then you become a columnist in 2022. You are automatically pigeonholed as problematic. Like it happens from the get-go. Is that something you anticipated? Well, you know, it's funny when you say you were automatically pigeonholed as problematic. I was I'm automatically not saying it like it's a negative thing. Okay, no, that, no, that was a but compliment. I, but, but I mean, here again, like we're talking about these microcosms that it's one that you and I happen to be, you know, in to some extent, which is like the literary, you know, very online world of journalism. But actually, like that was happening on essentially Twitter and, um, you know, probably some other social media platforms that I'm not really on. But in the real world, I wasn't getting that at all. So, you know, it's one of those situations where people are like, oh my God, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm great. Like, I'm having the time of my life. This stuff happens on Twitter. In real life, what I'm getting is, you know, a million emails and messages and phone calls and lunches of people that are just so happy to hear what I have to say, to see that opinion expressed. And I'm not saying there wasn't some criticism too, but by and large, the feedback that I have gotten has been enormously positive. And so if you looked on Twitter, you would think that like I must be holed up, you know, quivering under my sofa. And it's not to say that like death threats and stuff like that don't upset me or get to me like they definitely do. But that's not the real world. And you know, journalists have been saying this for a long time and politicians like Twitter isn't the real world, Twitter isn't the real world. But I do think that for many of them, they still kind of believe that it is. And it really isn't. It's just not. So the calculation that I made before I became a colonist was sort of twofold. One was, and the reason it took me so long to kind of get to that place to say, yes, you know, I raised my hand. One was that I would have to write what I believe to be true, no matter what no matter what the blowback, and that I would never, ever let that move me from my own compass, my own moral compass of what I felt like was true and right. Now, it's not to say that I'm always correct, but in my mind, I am always writing what I think is true, not what I think like, oh, it would be good to say that, or I should say this, or like people would really like it if I wrote X, not to try to build a following. And so when I applied for the job, I said, you know, there are a couple things that I really want if I get this job. One is I, I want to be able to go off Twitter. And because at that point, it was sort of before, you know, a lot of people had broken up with Twitter and you were supposed to be engaged on social media <laughs> as a journalist. And I, It's and better I, than ever. Just gets better right. every day. <laughs> and I thought, like, the only way to do this is if you don't let yourself get distracted by what other people think, because then you lose sight of what you think. Just not to say that you shouldn't still be informed about the world. But I don't think that, again, social media or Twitter specifically is like the best way to become informed about the quote unquote conversation. I think, if anything, it becomes very misleading. And it is all too tempting to try to write to appeal to some faction on Twitter. Like in the early days of Twitter, we all remember what it was like when you said something, you know, about like Butterfingers or, you know, about, you know, uh, you know a toy that you liked from Toys R Us in the 80s. And you would get all of this feedback like, yay, you. And oh, my God, me too. <laughs> so much blah, blah, this. Blah. Right. And it would seen completely push your like internal junior high school button and you'd be like, yay, I won the cafeteria. Um, and so like, that's a very seductive draw 
um, for all of us because we're just human. Like it's dopamine, dopamine. So I knew that if I paid attention to that, it would get, it would lead me astray from saying things that I felt like people might not like, but that I nonetheless felt like I needed to, needed to be said. And so anyway, so I said, I, I, I'm not going to go on Twitter if I do this. And, and I'm going to try to, write what I think is true and what I think a lot of people believe but are afraid to articulate again because they're scared. And again, I also want to say, like, I understand that fear. Like, I had that fear. I had that fear, but I just decided, like, 5% of me was like, well, you know, drag the other 95% of the, you know, cowardly you along and do this because it's important. It's, it's, it's more important to speak out and say what you think than it is to be silent because when you're silent, it's, you know, I hate the word complicity, but you know, it is, it starts to feel like a silent agreement. Right. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't agree with these things. Yeah. Well, as I've said ad nauseum, if the smart, thoughtful people don't speak up, the stupid, thoughtless people are happy to do the job. But very, I mean, really a very good thing to but, I, but like back, I mean, but yeah, I mean, it's like the smart people are smart enough to keep their mouths shut. That that's been the the problem. Right. So we have well, a then lot of, <laughs> lot of stupid people talking. But but like, I mean, so we're not that smart, Megan. Right, I know. I, I'm I'm like I'm mid mid smart. But but like, I, I mean, the Twitter thing. I you are right about that. It's also true that, unfortunately, a lot of major cultural institutions, a lot of gatekeepers, people with a lot of influence, still look to social media as a weather vane. And, you know, you've got like a publishing industry that still has not figured out that there's a lot of money on the table, frankly, and a whole lot of readers out there whose interests are not being served and yes. they're still, it's operating in an echo chamber. I mean, Absolutely. I'm really, really curious about your thoughts about the state of publishing. We're recording this on November 16th. Last night was the, uh, the National Book Award ceremony. Uh, authors had organized to make a statement calling for a ceasefire. A couple of sponsors pulled out. Um, I mean, just looking at the uh, finalists and the winners for those awards, it's a very different landscape than it was even five or six years ago. Very different. Completely different. I Yeah, I do think that, you know, reading is a pleasure and reading is informative, but reading is not cable TV and it's not Twitter. And I think that sometimes publishers have gone a little bit astray in equating those things because like with cable TV, we know that people turn on cable news, the very small number of people who actually watch that stuff, and I'm not among them, they do it to reaffirm their beliefs, generally speaking. I don't think that most readers are really drawn to reaffirming their beliefs. I think most readers, real readers, either want a great story, something fun, entertaining, diverting, or they want to learn something new. And so in general, people like just to publish a book that says like, I think X and you should too. Like, I don't think, you know, the sort of a virtual signaling version of a book, I don't think that a lot of people are that interested in it. And I also think that people are fundamentally, especially when it comes to fiction, interested in story. And so, you know, peopling things with a political message that isn't carried through by real complicated characters and good storytelling 
isn't going to sell books. The problem is that it will get a lot of media attention, you know, because so you have a kind of myopia within the publishing industry that is then reflected in a myopia in the media and a myopia sometimes among, you know, the the other gatekeepers, the librarians, the book buyers, et cetera, that all think that they are on a mission to accomplish, to create a better society through the lens of, of books. And that just generally doesn't get a lot of people buying books. I mean, really, it was so when are they going to figure that out? I think that they are figuring that out. I mean, I think that, you know, there are all these, there are these various consolidations going on, you know, in, in streaming TV too, for various reasons. Um, and in publishing, there are economic pressures. And so they really do need to figure it out that people respond to original storytelling. I mean, there are, uh, White Lotus, for example, which I really loved um, on HBO. You know, there was a lot of irony in that and satire and complexity. Um, and some people didn't like it, found everyone very unlikable. Just it just didn't it wasn't palatable. But I do think that that kind of storytelling, that kind of complexity, trying to get you to sympathize with people that might not be, you know, quote unquote, in the, you know, likable sort of bucket of humanity because they're wealthy or good looking or whatever other evil thing that they are that that's what people want from books. Like, people do respond to that. And if you look at the books that are actually selling, especially in terms of fiction, like, some of it is really good and complicated literature. A lot of it is genre. I mean, one of the columns I wrote this year was about Colleen Hoover, who became a big TikTok phenomenon. She writes mostly romances. It's not a thing that I have read, like, since, you know, I don't know, since uh, Sweet Dream Romances, you know. Um, Sweet Valley High. Yes. Well, there was Sweet Valley High, but there was also Sweet Dreams. Oh, I don't know what like, that was. Oh, it's a little romance line for for teenagers. It was like, for, you for know, middle school. school. For, for yeah. junior yeah, high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet, exactly. Sweet Valley Junior High. So they, it was like Young Miss Magazine. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember that era. Yes. But um, the... Colleen, Colleen Hoover. Colleen Hoover. So Colleen Hoover, it had been written a number of times, you know, people had written about like how she became a phenomenon, um, which was on social media. But I thought, well, there's got to be a reason people are reading these books, right? And so I read them to try to understand that. And you really, there's no lesson to be learned in a Colleen Hoover novel other than, you know, it all works out happily in the end. It's just pure diversion with a bunch of, you know, pathos and bathos in the middle of, and you very know, sexy, very hot. Yes, apparently. very sexy, very hot. Yeah. And, you know, and then crime novels continue to sell despite, you know, the police being, you know, supposedly evil. People still like a good detective hero. I do think that we, you know, the publishing industry I think at heart they know this. The success of David Gran, who applies, you know, really great storytelling uh, to uh, historical, you know, events. Again, like people really do want a big, you know, a great yarn. I don't know. I just think that at some point there will be a reckoning, to use a loaded term, where, you know, you just have to, ultimately, it's a business for them as much as it is an art. Yeah. And they have to figure out a way to do, to have the art be powerful enough to engage people beyond a simple political message. 
and the commerce engage enough people, you know, again, almost despite zero political messaging. Right. I mean, the story we often hear is that, you know, older, you know, more senior level management publishing executives are like afraid of their staff. It's again, it's it's a generational yes. divide. I mean, we've right. had we've had examples like at Hachette, for for instance, I think when they were going to publish the Woody Allen memoir, you've got like, you know, junior staff kind of rank and file walking out, threatening to quit yeah. because it's an unsafe environment for them, you know, to be working in a publishing company that's publishing certain books. I mean, it is, it's like, you can't even make this up. Like, you know, if, if 20 years ago, when you and I got into the business more than that now, like, you know, I've, again, I've said this before, like I got into this business because I love ideas and I love complexity and I want to be around people who like, you know, wrestle with those kinds of things. And that's where it was happening. That's where it was happening. And now it's like the opposite. Challenging people's ideas and laughing at not just other people, but laughing at yourselves, like poking fun. I feel like all the day, you know, every day something, you know, ridiculous happens where I'm like, well, if there was still spy magazine or satire, or if there was still like smart, oh my gosh, uh, you know, like even, even the onion content, used like to be smart, funny. Yeah the, yeah, the onion before it became what it became, or like old school shouts and murmurs where like just anything. It's so interesting because publishing used to be about danger, you know, and now it's about safety. So here's an unpopular opinion, and this actually came up in a recent retreat, one of my one of my women's retreats for the unspeakeasies. Everything is off the record, but I can say this in the most general terms. So we were talking about publishing, we're talking about arts and culture and what's happened, and someone floated the idea that because you know publishing is now so female dominated, most of the editors are women. The literary agents are women. You know, obviously, yes, the executives at the very, very top tend to be men. But, you know, compared with, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, there are a whole lot of women running this industry. Oh, I know already I'm going to agree with you. Okay. And there's a kind of baseline empathy that women tend to have, not always, but generally have and an agreeableness. I mean, now we now we're sounding like Jordan Peterson, but he's not wrong about this kind of thing often. There is a female sensibility that now dominates publishing and is perhaps enabling this kind of pandering. Well, I actually thought you were going to go in a different direction. Okay. Um, so I, can I go in the other direction? Please. I'm going to go in the other no, direction. No disagreeing um, <laughs> with me. <laughs> Nothing surprising. So I thought you were going to talk about the fact that men don't read because uh, they don't. They're reading far fewer and boys are reading a lot less. And I thought a lot about this when I was working on the book, How to Raise a Reader. But I do think that part of the reason that men don't read is that the kinds of books like dad books, which I love, by the way. So again, I guess I'm, I'm gender Wait, non-conforming. A dad book? No, no. Dad books are like the book where you're like, I don't know what to get my dad for like Christmas or whatever, or Hanukkah. Um, and it's, um, it's like what Stephen Ambrose used to publish and David McCullough. It's John Meacham. It's uh, Doug Brinkley. It's a big bio, sweeping history, like Lewis and Clark, Teddy Roosevelt, anything about the Kennedys. It's just a big dad book. Or, you know, fiction-wise, it would be, you know, the John Grisham, the, um, you know, the old Tom. Okay, so uh, these are big sort of solid old school meat and potatoes books. Yes. 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 So 
those books are not getting published as much and um, not being publicized as much, not getting as much promotion. And again, that's multifold, right? That's the fact that those are the kind of books that if they weren't reviewed, we'd get a full page ad in the New York Times book review or in the the a book of the Times itself. No one spends on on print advertising anymore. They would get big, um, what we call dumps, like displays in the Barnes and Noble and the big chains in bookstores, so that you you know they were kind of unavoidable. Like they're the books that, you know, when I was working in a B Dalton in the late '80s, you know, it was like the a brief history of time too, right? Everyone just bought that book, or it was uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, just those those kinds of books don't get a lot of attention um, and aren't being published as much. And I do think that that is in part because there are so many more women in the industry and not just in the publishing industry, but again, in all of the gatekeepers, the librarians are largely women, the bookstore buyers are largely women, the people who uh, in the trades are largely women, the book bloggers are largely Sales women. Marketing and so, yeah. yes, so you, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy and I don't like so if you don't give people what they want to read, they're not going to read. I, and again, I think there are lots of non-book elements that lead into this reason why men aren't and aren't reading and boys aren't reading. But I think it's a problem um, and that it hasn't been suitably addressed. And nonfiction, adult nonfiction as a category has been steadily dropping for the last few years. And again, multiple factors, right? You used to have TV shows that would promote serious nonfiction. When John uh, Stewart was doing um, The Daily Show, he did it a lot. Colbert had serious nonfiction authors on all the time. Those Charlie went Rose. away. Charlie Rose, right? So we lost a lot of the, the ways in which that, that generated awareness of those books. So you can publish them, right? Like last fall, for example, there were two major biographies of Ted Kennedy that came out at the same time. And back in the day, right, like those two publishers would have been putting up big sales advertising campaigns. They would have been reviewed together on the cover of every major book review in the country. Those guys would have gone on to the breakfast shows. I also mentioned the breakfast shows did used to have um, more of those kind of uh, big, serious nonfiction books on. And again, I, you know, I call them dad books, but as I said, I love them. So I'm try not trying to gender stereotype. Um, women read those books too, for sure. But uh, those are the kind of books that tended to skew male um, relative to other categories. And I don't think that, that that's happening as much mm -hmm, anymore either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, another thing that I've talked about a little bit is this sort of socioeconomic class issue. So, you know, part of the reason there are so many women in book publishing is because those jobs just don't pay very well. So you're going to over-index for a certain kind of a certain like class level woman, like somebody who maybe has family money or has a spouse or a partner who's earning a lot of money and can allow them to live in, you know, one of the most expensive cities in the world and make a pretty uh, middling salary. Yeah. It's, and that's why you have white women of a certain ilk in these jobs. It's not because there's some grand conspiracy to keep other people out. I mean, this is the other thing I say. They, people go, oh, pub publishing, it's so white. Well, yeah. And believe me, they would love to have more Black editors. At this point, you could, I mean, if you are... No, it's a 
yeah, you could write your ticket basically if you are a black person who wants to be in publishing. But you know, most people when can't I graduated afford it. from college, it was uh, I couldn't afford to go into publishing because the starting salary at FSG was fourteen thousand five hundred. <laughs> I think that's and still the starting else, salary at FSG. But yeah. <laughs> Practically, it was seventeen or eighteen, and I only was able to start at Scholastic after moving back from Thailand because that particular job was half editing and half business side and paid twenty four thousand yeah. and paid overtime. But yeah, unless, and, and if you don't have a parent who lives in the city and can afford to live with them, like you just, it's impossible. No, I think people just don't get this. Yeah. I, I mean, my first job, I, I worked at Condé Nast, my first job at a college, and the starting salary was $18,000. And I remember the woman in HR said, well, you know, I mean, this, that, that's the salary, but I mean, obviously, you know, you're not, you're not going to live on that. I mean, that's not, that's not how it works around here. You know, <laughs> like the, right. the, the assumption was that you had a trust fund or your parents were paying your rent for your, you know, little studio when you're doorman building. Right. Uh, in I mean, Manhattan. Even then it was less expensive. Like my first apartment in New York, I had a share um, in the East Village, but my room was only $400. I know my room was $500. Yes. In, in Morningside so it, Heights. With right. So like yeah. if you if you 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 could make it work kind of. It's kind of, but I mean 18,000, yeah, right. it was still I mean we had all these weird perks at Condé Nast like if you worked past I mean this talk about old the you know OG like if you worked past eight o'clock or something you could get a like a town car <laughs> you could call a car service or no that's not true you know what sometimes you could be you could take a cab that's what it was if if you worked past 8 p.m this is so like a throwback to like the women's you know all all the girls working at these you know women's companies so you could take a cab if it was after eight o'clock and you could expensive expense it. So what we would do, or at least what I would do, would be to take the subway and then expense it anyway and say that I lost the receipt and uh, right. get, uh, you know, get reimbursed for cabs that I did not take. Well, so. remember there was that Sloan Crossley collection. I was told there would be cake. Yes, right? of course. Like, I remember going to events if really depending on whether there would be free food. You yes. Know, because I couldn't afford oh, yeah, to you, buy. You could just subsist on canapes. Exactly. Yeah. And Sloan was a book publicist. Right. She knew. She was a great publicist and then became a great writer. Yeah. Yeah, I know. There's oh, a lot the of the '90s. I know, all oh, the '90s. But yeah, and um, I mean, we'll we'll wrap this up in a in a minute. But I do. I think that like, yeah, the the future of publishing is something that is very fascinating to me because I feel like there is such hunger for, you know, like books that really wrestle with ideas the way they used to, and I don't know when you know sort of big mainstream publishing is going to catch up. And, and you know, I'm curious too, like, what, what do you think about all these little sort of, you know, boutique-y, heterodox houses that are that are popping up? I mean, we have the like Heresy Press, which I believe you've written about, and I'm actually on the on the board of their, their mission. It's a new small press. Their mission is to publish fiction that does not adhere to the sort of new rules of, of publishing. I mean, what do you think about all these little enterprises? I mean, I think that if the, you know, as with any startup, I hate to say this, it's like beverages. It's all about distribution. So if, um, and building awareness. So if you are able to create something good that people are aware of and can access, 
then I think there's a lot of hope for it because small publishers, you know, have done pretty well, actually, even in the era of of big conglomerates. What worries me is the distribution systems, right? Because self-publishers can do well on Amazon, but, you know, it's a system that's a little bit weighted in various, you know, inexplicable ways towards people who are somehow part of the Amazon ecosystem, right? And then there are uh, fewer independent bookstores. I mean, they're, well, the independents have had a resurgence, um, but, you know, sometimes they're they're quite small. It, it's about if they can get these books distributed and have people be aware of them and the quality is there, then I think that, you know, there is hope. And if but, the reviewers, I mean, although how important is reviewing too? Because that's the other thing is like if you're self-published and a lot of people are trying to make a case for self-publishing these days and they they do have a case, but you're still not going to get reviewed in the New York Times. Right. Um, I mean... I think that reviews are less important overall uh, than they used to be by simple dint of numbers. So, you know, I remember um, a really talented novelist uh, talking like, and this was now like five or eight years ago, just really depressed about things because it used to be you would write a book and you would get, you know, reviewed in the, you know, Des Moines Register and in the Springfield Herald and then the Tampa Bay Tribune. And, you know, you would have like 20 or 30 places around the country that would review you. But in the last 15 to 20 years, with the sort of death of or slow asphyxiation of local media, one of the first things to go were culture departments. And among culture departments, you know, books were often the first in that sphere, you know, along with classical music. And it was a numbers game, right? Because millions of people watch TV, but thousands of people read books um, in general. And so, you know, they want to get to the most readers when they're making that kind of audience uh, play. So there's just just not as much coverage anymore. And therefore, it's much harder for a review to have an impact. Because one of the things that a review of the New York Times book review would do, it wasn't just about the New York Times book review, but it would alert reviewers and editors around the country. Well, the Times has done it, so we need to do something. And it would also alert all the bookers on the breakfast shows, like, oh, this got a big review. This is a big thing. Let's um, book this person. But again, all of those various systems have really shrunk their books coverage. So you don't get that kind of build, you know, and in the same ways that movies Movies used to have that slow build where they'd open a few theaters and word of mouth and all of that. Like that kind of thing doesn't happen as often as much. What happens now is that a lot of it is in the pre-publication process. You're generating interest like well in advance through trying to, you know, generate somehow, a, a, a you know, it's like a, an artificial uh, grassroots uh, campaign where you seed it with book bloggers and such and hope that they get excited. And it's just, it's hard to do. And, the, and, and again, the, that's a lot of work, a lot of footwork uh, for a small publisher to take up. You know, they, the big publishers have a, a marketing team that handles all of that, that kind of online marketing stuff, which is just, it's a right. lot of Although increasingly they don't do a very good job of it and yes. the authors end up having to do everything themselves anyway. Right. Or hire, and then or hire a publicist or yes. hire a publicist who used to work for one of these big houses and is now on their own and making much more money and charging authors, you know, half of what their advance would have been. Anyway, 
yeah, <laughs> on and on. Well, all right, I'm 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 gonna let you go. My 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 last question though, and um, might be asking this partly out out of just personal curiosity. How hard is it for you to write a column every week? I mean, it's really hard. Like, do you ever fear that like you're not gonna have an idea that week? Like, what's your panic quotient? Okay, you're gonna hate this answer. I can tell because of the way that you asked it. That's not hard at all. I it's not hard at all. I mean, what is hard is getting it to exactly the place that I want to get it to and my editor wants to get it to. Um I have too many ideas and and not enough time to write them like every year so far. I mean, I've only been doing this a year and a half, but each fall I'm like I have 10 back to school related things I want to write about. And then I realized, oh, it's November and I missed it. I, you know, I, 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 I'll do that next year. There are so many books that I want to write about that don't get coverage because there just isn't enough space. A lot of the subjects that interest me and I'm always looking again and I'm like, I miss that pub date. I miss that pub date. And then, you know, there's just constantly something happening in the news to react to. So I, and again, maybe it's because I was, you know, I have it all uh, inside me from 11 years, but, um, <laughs> but to me, yeah. like it, it's the most exciting, fun thing. Like you could write about anything. Like really? I, I, I mean, one of the things that I did this year that was really rewarding is that I worked on a large, long, really long form project that I had started back in 2010, which was this big story about the survivors, the first generation to survive pediatric cancer. And I was a freelancer in 2010. I was working on the story. Again, it fit exactly into my sweet spot, which is like deeply tragic, but also, you know, human and, and a little bit of hope. And uh, because these are survivors, not uh not people who died, but I put it aside when I took the book review job. I watched that story for 13 years, and then I finally got to write it this year, and I worked on it for seven months on the side. And, you know, just it it was like a huge release to finally be able to tell that story that I'd been, I'd been holding on to for 13 years. Uh, so for me, it's the the biggest challenge. The panic is like, oh, I often have another sort of long, big, tragic story I want to tell on the side, but how am I going to do that and write a weekly column and 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 get it done before it gets old, right? Because right. if you have a ton of ideas, then, you know, you can only go with one that week. And if you desperately want to keep do it, like by the next week, it might be the moment may have passed. So I know, I know. I guess I always, my my thing was like, yes, I had a lot of ideas, but that didn't necessarily mean that I had a point to make. Like that, that was where I got hung up. Like, yes, just yeah. I'm interested in this. And then like, oh, of course I'm interested in this. Therefore I must have something to say about it. And then I would sit down to write about it. I'm like, I don't know what exactly I'm saying. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do with this column is that I also feel like the the role of the colonist has become a little more narrow than it used to be, right? It's it, Each column is supposed to be, you know, today seems to make an argument or be a persuasive essay, like, look at this, think this. And I wanted to do columns that were more in the vein of observation, like cultural observation, kind of a, a modern day take on Russell Baker. I mean, if you look back at Russell Baker's columns, his old columns, which everyone loved back in the day, like, 
no one like it it is so far removed from what anyone does now which is like he would almost write about like nothing but it was it was observational it had insight it had humanity it was uh it was a, a snapshot of a moment in time and i would love to be able to do more of that it's just there's such a expect different expectation now that i try to bring some of that in or sometimes you know, I also, again, when pitching myself as a columnist, I said, like, I don't always want to get someone to, like, think what I think. I mean, it'd be nice, but, like, they don't have to. I just want them to question themselves. And sometimes I want to do that by not offering an argument, but simply raising questions myself to show, like, this is something that I am tangling with, you know, intellectually or emotionally. And I might not have the answer, but like, these are some of the thoughts, like, see, these are some of the directions I'm thinking in and kind of provocations, not in the sense of being contrarian or trying to like, but more intellectual provocations, like things that I'm not sure about. And maybe you're not either, but perhaps if I elucidate some of those points of complexity, it will help you figure out your own thought process. And, you know, I think that, I don't know if you've said this, but, and I think for some reason, I think you have, but, you know, for me in the act of essay writing or column writing, I often don't, I have an idea of what I want to say and I know my argument, but I try not to articulate it until I'm writing because it's through the act of writing that I really come to flesh it out. I'm sort of thinking while I'm writing. And for me to overthink it before I start writing is a, I, it's almost like letting the air out of a balloon or like the, the, like the, the fizz out of a carbonated beverage. Like I need that bottled up kind of question and curiosity that's driving me to figure it out to be able to write it and get there. Yes. I don't think I said that. It was Joan Didion who said, I write in order to figure out what I think. Well, Megan Daum, Joan Didion. Yeah, whatever. Six of one half doesn't know the other. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And, uh, you know, I think this it's something I really appreciate about your columns, which is that, you know, you, you take it a, a approach that that I often do, which is that I'm making a suggestion. I'm not trying to convince somebody of something. I'm suggesting that maybe we think about it this way, or like I'm inviting them to come along with me as I sort through my thoughts. And and you do that a lot too, which I really appreciate. So, well, I appreciate your speaking with me, Pamela. I know you're incredibly busy and you probably uh, have a deadline looming over you as we speak, but this has been uh, a great conversation. and uh, So much fun. Do it again soon. I would love that. That was my conversation with Pamela Paul. She became an opinion columnist for the New York Times in 2022, and she was previously the editor of the New York Times Book Review. She's the author of many books, most recently, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. As always, if you would like to support the podcast, you can become a paying subscriber by going to my Substack, megandom.substack.com. I try to give you as much bonus content as possible. And in any case, that's where you can join the listener community, leave comments, have access to my writing, my very exclusive writing that nobody gets to read except the paying subscribers. What else? I won't go through it all again, but the Unspeakeasy, we have four, almost five retreats announced for next year. Go to theunspeakeasy.com to find out about them. My writing class, which is not just for ladies, that's for everybody, is going to be taking place on Zoom January 10th through February 14th. So 
go to the Substack to find out about that or the Unspeakeasy. The application deadline is December 13th. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then.